what your country can do for you. There's a last time I'm going to be in the lead. The Giants have the Peter, oh, you little mouse, so won't you go away? One ringy-dingy. Hand off to Griffin, cracks the middle, gets the five. Touchdown, Ohio State. Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plane. I'm interested to know, Gracie, who's your choice? Need you ask, George. Time now for Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. Here with all his skips, scratches, and pops is my dad, Frank Vaccarello. Thanks, sweetie. And thank you for tuning into episode 29 of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. We are once again featuring a non-music record in my dad's collection. In fact, this is the second dive into this collection of six records. My previous life in radio made me really appreciate the history we are hearing on this album. And I get to share a couple of my own radio stories in this episode. So get ready to heat up some old tubes on Volume 29, Golden Memories of Radio, Part 2. Radio was responsible for many great inventions. The ladies in particular took to their hearts one such development, the daytime serial. Now this kind of drama was unique and owed its success, I imagine, to the fact that it dwelt on real kinds of problems that were solved five days a week. The characters became family friends. Listeners wrote with advice, sent anniversary gifts, holiday cards, and remembered birthdays. It didn't take long for the daytime serial to be known affectionately as the soap opera, named after the sponsors. Let's listen in. The following program will be interrupted for any important war bulletins. And now, the romance of Helen Trent. of Helen Trent. The real-life drama of Helen Trent, who, when life mocks her, breaks her hopes, dashes her against the rocks of despair, fights back bravely, successfully, to prove what so many women long to prove in their own lives, that because a woman is 35 or more, romance in life need not be over, that romance can begin at 35. Donovan, her husband, because of the mysterious, sinister actions of Ira Brewster, who beat Carrie for district attorney by lying about Nancy's supposed parentage. Why, it's you, Mr. Willoughby. Hello, Bill. Well, I didn't expect to see you way down here in Hartville again tonight. 
Well, you look all in. I am rather tired, Bill. It's been a long, confusing day for me. Uh, here, Mr. Willoughby, uh, sit down. Uh, let me call Nancy. Uh, she's back in the kitchen. I'll have her bring in some hot coffee. Uh, maybe you'd like something to eat. Oh, no, Bill, thanks. Don't bother Nancy. Oh, Nancy will want to hear whatever you've got to tell me. Oh, Nancy. Yes, Daddy. What is it? Uh, Mr. Willoughby's here. Uh, you better come in. Oh, and bring some coffee, will you? Oh, yes, Daddy. I'll be in in a minute. We started out that selection with Jack Benny's introduction to this section of his collection and Frank Knight narrating, as you will hear both of them do so throughout this episode. And we heard a very odd introduction, in fact, one that would never, ever be thought about today, or at least I hope so. That was from The Romance of Helen Trent, which aired on CBS Radio from October 30th, 1933 to June 24th, 1960, for a total of 7,222 episodes. And we ended with a few moments from Just Plain Bill, a 1932 through 1955 15-minute radio drama program heard on CBS Radio and NBC Radio. Remember, most of the USA didn't have TV at this time. This is what entertained millions of Americans each night. Okay, why this album? Well, my life in radio was a direct result of what some of these pioneers were doing. I really dig hearing some of these old shows. It also helps me appreciate what came before the days of spinning tunes and talking between records or interviewing musicians, politicians, and athletes, all of which I've done. I sometimes wish I could have been around for some of that early radio, so unscripted and so much experimentation, but I also like the tools I have now, so I guess I'm happy here. One thing I was glad to be around, and that was professional athletes. So now time for the sports report. Jack, radio allowed us to fill in the details with the magic paintbrush of imagination. I wonder if that's the reason that radio was able to capture pathos on a scale far more personal than television or even the motion picture. Yes, radio let the listener add something of himself to every broadcast. I remember two broadcasts from the Yankee Stadium in New York that are as vivid as though I heard them yesterday. You're probably thinking of Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and the strange fate that entwined their destinies. Both were great names in baseball. Both played for the New York Yankees. <laughs> they even tried their hand at a radio show. Hey, Babe, you've taken off a lot of weight in the past few years. Look at my figure, kid. All you've got to do now is to diet for 10 or 15 more years and you'll almost look human. Boy, I'm careful of what I eat these days. Listen, babe, you have a farm where you grow your own food, don't you? Yes, I have a farm. What do you raise there? Lots of things. Celery, for instance. Really? You raise celery? Of course. Why the surprise? I thought Colonel Rupert was the fellow that always raised your celery. I said celery, not celery. As radio performers, they were great baseball players. Thank you. 
I think a golden moment of radio touched with rare emotion was that afternoon at Yankee Stadium when Babe Ruth said goodbye to his fans. Every seat in the giant stadium was filled. The great Babe was dying of throat cancer. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. You know how bad my voice sounds. Well, it feels just as bad. You know this baseball game of ours comes up from the youth. That means the boy. And after you're a boy and grow up to know how to play ball, then you come to the boys you see representing themselves today in your national pastime. The only real game, I think, in the world, baseball. And it was only a few years later that another sorrowing crowd filled Yankee Stadium. This time, it was to say so long to Lou Gehrig, for he was fatally ill and had not long to live. Today, today I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Jack, I don't think pictures would have helped either scene. I know that when I listened, I could picture easily those two men dwarfed by the immensity of the stadium. Yet their words were big and clean and brave. Yes, very poignant recordings. So in this order, you heard Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig on their radio show, Babe Ruth's final message, and then Lou Gehrig saying goodbye to a stadium full of fans. All right, let's learn about this album for this episode. It is Jack Benny, Golden Memories of Radio. It is on the Longines Symphonette Society label. It is a six vinyl LP compilation mono box set. It was released in 1969. Its genre is non-music and its style is radio play. Now we are listening to record two, which is side two and 11 from this collection. All right, let's uh, read some liner notes here. And it's just part one of Recollections of a Radio Writer by Albert G. Miller. When I was a youngster in Philadelphia, the word radio had little meaning for me. As far as I was concerned, radio was merely some kind of an electrical message that was sent out by ships in distress. But when I was almost 13, the genius kid who lived next door wound copper wire around an oatmeal box, made a few mysterious adjustments, and let me listen through his mail-order headset. The first time I heard staccato dictas coming through the air and without wires, I was hooked. The next day, I emptied my piggy bank and bought myself a crystal set with earphones. And from that moment on, my entire family was hooked. The toughest problem with my primitive device was to find a good spot on the crystal for the cat's whisker. When that was located, the next problem was to keep the relatives from walking heavily or slamming a door, for any sharp vibration could cause the wire whisker to jump off the good spot, thus breaking the contact. 
the sensitivity of the set placed a heavy strain on family relationships. Because each time I would yell, I hear something, everybody would come galloping first, making sure to slam at least one door. The advent of the tube set reestablished Amity in the household, for it not only did away with the crystal and cat's whisker, but also came equipped with two outlets for earphones. About four feet wide and having about a dozen dials to fiddle with, our tube set was a joy to manipulate, a small boy's dream of paradise. It brought in Wanamaker's mighty organ as clear as anything, and best of all, if I fooled with the dials late at night, I could get distance. The first time I heard, you are listening to station KDKA Pittsburgh, I almost fell off the stool in my excitement. Pioneer Station KDKA opened late in 1920 and broadcast the Harding-Cox election returns. You may be sure I listened to that marvel, as well as the first radio prize fight the following year between Dempsey and Carpenter. The next step upward in our house was a classy radio set with a loudspeaker that permitted the whole family to listen at the same time. A splendid machine it was, too, for it resembled a small cathedral, and the speaker, I think it was called a music master, was shaped like a giant morning glory. This floral form was symbolic of the broadcasting industry itself, which was blooming like a forced plant in a greenhouse. During the next three or four years, I heard hundreds of ordinary shows, but with the formation of the National Broadcasting Company in 1926, the real quality stuff began to come along. Owing to the fact that air entertainment was free, college kids like me did our studying with the radio going full blast. National sponsors gave us such goodies as the AP Gypsies, the Atwater Kent Entertainers, and the Silvertown Court Orchestra. We had our favorite announcers, too, such stalwarts as Graham McNamee, Norman Brokenshower, Milton Cross, and Ted Husing. <laughs> we'll uh, finish those in upcoming episodes as we feature more discs from this collection. All right, uh, let's look at the value that Discogs has placed on this collection. The highest comes in at $13, lowest at $1.78, and the median at $7.25. Found a copy on eBay for $15.99 and one on Amazon for $14.50, so they weren't too outrageous. My dad's album collection, the media itself is fair. Not too much hissing or scratch on it. Uh, the collection package itself also in fair condition, so I will call the value of my dad's five bucks. Now, let's enjoy a couple of experts excerpts from more long-running shows. Life was never simple and easy for the real-life characters in our soap operas. Marriage, separation, illness, even death played a part. The heroines came from all walks of life, even from the theater itself. And now, Mary Noble, backstage wife. Mary has been the victim of a false friend, Armand Delubac, who took her diamond engagement ring with the promise of having it repaired. But instead, Armand pawned the ring and tried to blackmail Mary and Larry. And when Marsha Mannering tried to make it appear that Mary was in love with Armand and had given the ring to him, she turned Larry violently against her. And thereupon, Marsha conspires with Armand to get even with Mary and Larry. When Mary and Larry later discover that the ring has disappeared from the shop, Mary is heartbroken, and Larry resolves at last to notify the police. Well, Mary, here's our story in all the afternoon papers. Yes, Larry, I've seen it. Famous actor reports theft of wife's jewels to police. 
A very concise and accurate statement of facts, I'd say. And you certainly can't feel that this is very damaging publicity, Mary. You got around it very nicely, Larry. Well, the police have cooperated, too, in not revealing anything to the press except what's printed right here. But why well, still have the sinking feeling that something bad's about to happen, Larry? The doom's hanging over our heads. Well, I've managed so far to keep those reporters from getting a hold of me. They've been banging at the door all morning, clamoring for more details, but if I can just continue to duck them, I don't think that any more will leak out. Well, it's not only the reporters I'm afraid of. What do you mean? You're taking this thing awfully hard, Mary. Oh, Larry, what's going to happen when or if the police do catch Armand or whoever it is that has my ring? Well, we'll just get the ring back and prosecute the scoundrel, that's all. But... Don't you see? You'll still have to go through all that mess of a criminal trial. All right, baby, so what? But unless we can be perfectly sure of presenting the facts believably, the public will turn against you. They might think on the face of it that you're prosecuting an innocent man. Mary, I, I wish you wouldn't be arguing against me in this thing. I've done what I think best in order to get back your engagement ring. I know you have, Larry, dear, and I love you for it. As radio changed its role, old favorites faded from the scene. For example, I know that many people shed a quiet tear with Ma Perkins. I suppose our youngsters would say cornball or square. And now, CBS Radio brings you Ma Perkins. Well, what could be more appropriate today than to turn the clock back to join Ma and the folks at Thanksgiving dinner? Ma and the family have so much to give thanks for. Let's join them all. They haven't yet sat down. In the kitchen, we find Faye and Evie and Ma. Listen. <laughs> Shuffle and Willie are so hungry. Come on, honey. Let's get the cranberries. Look at the turkey. Now, here's Ma again. Thank you, Dan. This is our broadcast number 7065. I first came here on December 4th, 1933. Thank you for all being so loyal to us these 27 years. The part of Willie has been played right from the beginning by Murray Forbes. Shuffle was played for 25 years by Charles Eggleston and for the last two years by Edwin Wolfe, who was also our director. The fay you have been hearing these past few years has been Margaret Draper, and the part was played for many years by Rita Ascot. For 15 years, our Evie has been Kay Campbell. Helen Lewis plays Gladys, and Tom Wells has been played by both John Larkin and Casey Allen. Our announcer is Dan Donaldson. Our writer for more than 20 years has been Oren Tavroff. Ma Perkins has always been played by me, Virginia Payne. If you care to write to me, Ma Perkins, I'll try to answer you. Goodbye, and may God bless you. That was 
Ma Perkins' last broadcast. And before that, we heard from Mary Noble, Backstage Wife. Now, since we're not doing a bio in this episode, I thought we could learn a little more about one of those extremely popular shows. Backstage Wife was an American soap opera radio program that detailed the travails of Mary Noble, a girl from a small town in Iowa who came to New York seeking her future. It aired from August 1935 through July 1955 on several networks. Vivian Friedel had the title role from 1935 until the early 1940s. It was taken over by Claire Neeson, who played Mary Noble for 14 years until the end of the series. Mary's husband, Larry Noble, was portrayed by Ken Griffin, then James Megan, and finally Guy Sorrell. The music was supplied by organist Chet Kingsbury. Now, each episode opened with the announcer explaining, Now we present once again Backstage Wife. The story of Mary Noble, a little Iowa girl who married one of America's most handsome actors, Larry Noble, matinee idol of a million other women. The story of what it means to be the wife of a famous star. In fact, in Hogan's Heroes episode, the 43rd, A Moving Story, Hogan and Kinslow find out from their secret radio that the bank is going to foreclose on Mary Noble, backstage wife. They didn't want to mention it to Sergeant Carter because they didn't know what the news would do to him. Yes, that first sentence of the last tidbit was in the Wikipedia article, and I added that what happened to uh, Carter because... I'm also a Hogan's Hero fan, and there may be connections to that show from time to time. <clears throat> okay, but, but I digress. All right, here's something I haven't said in the previous 28 episodes of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. And now for this commercial break. Now, back around 1926, radio invented something else. Sponsors. Sponsors have provided comedians with more jokes than the Los Angeles smog. Red Skelton made his first radio appearance in 1937 on the Rudy Valley Show. And soon after, he was credited with this comment. The longest word in the English language is the one that follows. And now a word from our sponsor. But one of the reasons both radio and television were able to provide free entertainment of the highest caliber was the advertisers who paid the bills. I'm sure you'll find a chuckle or two in these famous radio commercials. The first you hear is from Interwoven Socks, reputed to be the first singing commercial. The singers are the famed Billy Jones and Ernie Hare, who were known as the Happiness Boys. How do you do, everybody? How do you do? It's great to say hello to all of you. I'm Billy Joe. I'm Ernie Hare. We're the interwoven bear. How do you do? Brushless shaving cream supreme Leaves your face so smooth and clean Pepsi Cola hits the spot Twelve full ounces, that's a lot Twice as much for a nickel too Pepsi Cola is the drink for you Rinse white and rinse bright L-A-V-A, L-A-V-A This is Sandy Becker saying Keep cooking with Crisco 
It's all vegetable. It's digestible. Longines is not lightly called the world's most honored watch. For Longines watches have won 10 World's Fair grand prizes and 28 gold medals. Longines watches have also won more honors for accuracy than any other timepiece. Longines, the world's most honored watch, is a product of the Longines Whitnor Watch Company. Ah, but do you remember singing this in elementary school and before, depending on how old you are? Pepsi Cola hits the spot, ties your belly in a knot, tastes like vinegar, looks like ink, Pepsi Cola stinky drink. <laughs> so the commercials you heard there were Interwoven Socks, Chesterfield Smoke Dreams, Pepsi Cola, Rinso, Lava, Crisco, and the Longines Wittenauer Watch Company, which actually sponsors this collection and many other collections in my dad's records. So let's talk about this episode's interesting side note. Now, let me preface this with the fact that there were no advertisements in the early days of commercial radio. Radio companies sold the radios, which is how they made the money, until everybody had a radio. For AT&T, radio was a natural extension of the business that it had built around the telephone. And it was on precisely that model that it opened its first radio station in 1922. Where other stations had spoken only for themselves, WEAF in New York spoke for no one. It had no cause to promote, no interest to represent. Its only purpose was to trade time for money. Its studio was essentially a phone booth to the airwaves. Anyone who wanted to buy access had to bring his own message and pay the toll. The station's first customer was the Hawthorne Court Apartments in Jackson Heights, New York. The company bought 10 minutes for $50. Around 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Monday, August 28th, an officer of the company made this sales pitch. No recording of that commercial exists. With those words, modern broadcast advertising was born. The developer bought more time, then an oil company went on the air, then the American Express Company. By October 1922, WEAF had logged total time sales of $550. It called its service toll broadcasting. Four years later, AT&T sold WEAF to the National Broadcast Company and left radio for good. But it left behind the financial structure on which American commercial broadcasting would grow rich through advertising. Now, time for some classic live on-air blunders. Yes, Frank, there have been flubs throughout radio's history. The most famous occurred when announcer Harry Bonzel introduced President Herbert Hoover like this. The next voice you will hear will be that of the President, Hubert Heaver. The news itself had its lighter side, Frank. One of the finest newsmen on the American Broadcasting Company staff was Julian Anthony. And he, too, made a kind of history one evening. Julian gave a special permission to play this tape. I think it's probably one of the genuinely funniest moments ever to be broadcast. In the wonder world of science, uranium has been discovered a few hundred yards from the White House and nearly 300 feet up. It's in the granite of the Washington Monument, but not valuable or dangerous. 
Back here in New York, the Hayden Planetarium has heard from a Minnesota man who claims that the shape of Aurora Borealis and Northern Lights can be changed by flapping a bedsheet at them from the ground. The planetarium doubts it, but the man says he did successfully flap sheets in his backyard one midnight, though his wife kept hollering at him to cut out the foolishness and get back in the house. This is Julian Anthony reporting. Yes, even the very best in the business were caught up by the unexpected. Okay, I think bloopers, bleeps, and blunders have become a lot more hilarious over the years, obviously. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Now, the last segment triggered a couple of memories about on-air tomfoolery. Someone off-air was always trying to make someone on-air laugh or lose it in some way. And two examples come to mind. Early days of radio, I was at a sister station to a very popular rock and roll station, and their DJ booth was glassed and closed on two sides. And for some reason during this summer that I was there, we happened to have a hot dog food cart on a bicycle, and it was stored on the second floor. So one time, as the DJ was just getting ready to open up the microphone, I had donned the white hat and the white apron and came riding the bicycle around the corner ringing my bell. I have no idea how she didn't laugh hysterically when uh, she saw me. She did give me a little chuckle. And another one was done to me. A few years later, I was reading the news and then getting ready to read the weather at the end of the news. And as I picked up my weather report from the stand in front of me, uh, one of the other DJs, um, who is still a friend of mine, by the way, reaches over with a lighter and lights my weather forecast on fire. It's a good thing I had read it a couple of times earlier in the day. Otherwise, I would have had no idea what the weather was uh, that day. So those are a couple of stories, actual stories, of people trying to create bloopers, bleeps, and blunder live on the radio. And... um, uh, this, the, this episode also reminded me of interviewing professional athletes and popular musicians, and I covered plenty of government and politics as a radio reporter. And speaking of politics, here's an interview with one and his wife. Another kind of daytime radio program was the interview show. Perhaps you remember two of the most famous as the Noontime Kate Smith Show and Mary Margaret McBride. Now, Mary Margaret McBride is still on radio in many cities. Certainly, she must own a record for her first broadcast went on the air in New York, May 3rd, 1934. Her guests have ranged from the great political figures to folks in the news. I don't know whether this is really a respectful way to speak about a vice president, but one of your, uh, one of the boys who uh, do some work around your office, Mr. Vice President Barkley, said to me, doesn't that guy ever get tired? (laughs) And I said, well, how would I know? He said, well, I didn't mean you to answer the question. It was just one of those rhetorical questions. He just said that you tire them all out. Somebody at the... uh Meet the press yesterday out in the audience asked me that question if I never got tired. And what'd you if say? I, I said I I've never had a feeling of fatigue or exhaustion in my life. I've always worked hard, but it may be a bad thing, because if I got tired I might go off and lie down and rest now and then. But never getting tired, I just keep on. 
Uh-huh. That's my answer, and that's the truth. I never do have a f- sense of fatigue or exhaustion. Never in your whole life. I bet you that means you don't worry. No, I don't, really. I don't mean that I don't uh, think things over seriously, but I, I, I've got a philosophical view that worrying it doesn't solve anything. And they tell me it creates ulcers in the stomach. Oh, yes. I've known them to get it. <laughs> now, Mrs. Barkley, you can tell us whether he really lives by this or whether this is one of those things men say now and then. No, it really is true. I can't possibly keep up with him, and I can tell you a cute little story about him that someone told on him when he was campaigning in 1948. It was either in 48 or 50. And he was touring very, very uh, terrifically heavy schedule over Kentucky in a very small plane, which was piloted by a good friend of his, and a couple of the young men that were helping out, my husband out, were along also. And he'd been hopping all over Kentucky for weeks and speaking here, there, and everywhere, making five and six speeches a day, and he had all the men absolutely beat down. He, of course, feeling perfectly fine. They got in the plane to take off to go on to their next engagement, and the pilot, who's an old friend of my husband's, said that he just absolutely was so worn out from this terrific campaign and from trying to keep up with him with not nearly enough rest for an ordinary, normal person to go on that he was in the, uh, had the con- at the controls, of course, and to his utter horror, he suddenly came to and realized that he had dozed and found the vice president very calmly just flying the plane. He knows nothing about it whatsoever at all, absolutely nothing. And the pilot was so frightened for just a minute, he didn't quite know what to do. It gave him an awful shock. And he said, oh, oh my, Mr. Vice President, he said, for goodness sake. And my husband said, well, that's all right, Charlie. He said, you look like you were kind of tired and need a little nap. <laughs> of course, it was one of those little bitty planes, I must explain it. Almost Charlie Gartrell. Yes, that's it was Charlie Gartrell. And he said, you just whipped him down, absolutely. <laughs> Oh, I don't know how you do this thing. But uh, well, I, I certainly would have been a little bit. That means he's never afraid either. No, he has a nerve in his body, not one. Mary Margaret McBride interviewing Mr. and Mrs. Alban Barclay, who happened to be Harry Truman's vice president. Now, before we end this episode, I want to play what Jack Benny intended to be the conclusion to the collection, even though there was still one side to go, which you heard in a previous episode. I know that the old must give way to the new, that progress and technological improvement must bring change. But I do think that something good was lost when radio tipped its hat to television. Yes, Frank, I think you're right. Jack, our deepest thanks for your help and guidance in compiling this living memory book. It's been a wonderful and sentimental journey. And you and I have shared our fondest memories of radio with our listeners. And perhaps we've helped them to rekindle the memory of beloved friends. And especially the warmth of a family sharing imaginations together. And the Buggles got it right years later. Video killed the radio star. Well, thanks for tuning in to Volume 29, Golden Memories of Radio Part 2, however you did. If you want more information on this podcast, head over to spinningmydadsvinyl.com. I'll be back next week with all my skips, scratches, and pops with Volume 30, Bing's Loved Songs, Part 1. Until then, go with the flow, my friends. <laughs>